Beloved, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus with me. The book of Exodus, we are in chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. If you're a visitor this morning, we again welcome you and invite you to look in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you in the racks in front of you, you'll see one there. You can follow along with us. Exodus chapter 6. Well, in this study, <clears throat> over the past few weeks, we've been in the opening five chapters, and we've learned <clears throat> an awful lot, have we not, Westmount, about the economy of God. Economy of God. We've learned that God's preparations are not what we expect and not what we busy ourselves with, right? We've learned that God's readiness is not according to our measuring stick. And we've learned that rejection is always part and parcel of being called by God. Yes, in our study of Exodus, we have experienced a lot of corrections. Important corrections to our thinking. Christian these are vital to us because we live in a sea of definitions and understanding that is so often categorically different, if not, if not, opposed completely to God's way, to God's definition, to God's working and plan. This morning, we arrive here in Exodus 6 at another one, and it is promise. Now, before we dive into the biblical understanding of promise, we again, as we have been and need to do, address our current understandings. Before we move forward, we need to do some housekeeping first, and we consider promise. Promise today, think about it, there, it's one of those words that Maybe even as you say it, you think of the opposite. Promise today is synonymous with what? Broken. To promise equals to break. Is that not true? So often to promise is to break. Promise is gutted. Think for a moment. It's true, I believe. Promise likely in your life has little or no weight for you at all. Certainly not in today's day and age. You, you give no weight to promise. And we can think... Of myriads of examples today. Go through election seasons with politicians. We don't want to hear about promises. We think of courtrooms, people placing their hands on Bibles of all things and promising to tell the truth. We can go on and on. Promise means nothing. And then, of course, consider the big one today. So tragic. We, of course, make much about the bride and the groom that stand up. In fact, we don't even call it promise. We call it vow. And now 50%, more than 50% of the time, they break those vows. They break the promise. If promises are regularly broken in such a sacred institution as marriage, then it is no surprise, beloved, no surprise, that promises are seemingly broken everywhere else. It is no surprise we have a systemic problem with promise. As a result, maybe you've arrived this morning and you've become jaded. You know what I mean? Promise is really just preparation for brokenness. And really, what a sad state of affairs that is today, is it not? Such a beautiful concept, promise. Promise far from building trust and fueling hope, only causes your eyes to roll, right? Yet, church, that is not what biblical promise does or should ever cause in us. Again, as we continue to see in this series, our definitions need to be checked. God's promises are not like our promises. Praise God. Today we'll see gloriously so. As we return to Exodus this morning, we remember where we left off last week. Moses, with brother Aaron in tow, has experienced rejection. 
Rejection, remember in that first encounter with Pharaoh, rejection plus anger, remember, more work. Israel has recoiled. The foremen are cursing Moses. And Moses is bewildered. Look back at the end of chapter 5. Verse 22, then Moses, in this bewilderment, turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. We commented on the bad and the good with that response to God. That's where we were last week. But to begin this morning, let's zero in on that last phrase again. Look at it in verse 23. God, you have not delivered your people, here it is, at all. In other words, in context, to start this morning, God, you have broken your promise. God, you said you would deliver your people, and God, you have not at all. Those words out of Moses' mouth demonstrate that at this point in his life, he has a significant misunderstanding about the promises of God. That's what this is telling us. And church, in the year 2020, after the year that we have had, I wonder if at this point in our lives, we have a measure of this misunderstanding too. I wonder. Maybe this morning, in our context, we have set ourselves up to jump to the same conclusions about promise, in the same way Moses does here. Listen, horizontal fixations will always do that. Horizontal fixations will always do that. I trust then this text before us will encourage your soul this morning in these very broken times. Westmount this morning, let us understand promise clearly, rightly, and biblically. And to do so, we will examine Exodus 6 in full. Within it, we will see four characteristics that will help us understand promise. Let's begin with the first, found at the beginning of chapter 6, starting in verse 1, the power in promise. The power in promise. Let's read verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God opens his retort to Moses, not with an admonishment. Of course, that would be deserved, right? But our merciful, gracious God does not do that. Instead, to open, look at verse 1, and if those words sound familiar, it's because they should. They're a restatement. Go back to chapter 3. This is the grace of our God, not admonishment, restatement. If we could paraphrase, just remember my promise. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Remember? Remember Mount Horeb? You remember the encounter with God? God said this, I know, and this is his call to Moses, I'm sending you, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God knows this. God has foretold it. Verse 20. So, thus, as a result of, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Note this. After that, he will let you go. That's so clear, isn't it? Now, as you're turning back to chapter 6, just consider for a moment here what we just saw in that promise. The power of God's omniscience. God says, I know Pharaoh will not let you go. Consider the degree of God's omnipotence. God says, unless compelled by a mighty hand. And then that mighty hand is described in detail back in chapter 3, verse 20. And that's all noteworthy, but here's the detail we don't want to miss. Again, this is what we're hanging on to from chapter 3. And the end of verse 20 says, after that, he will let you go. After that. There's a sequence of events here, yet as we turn and now look to the restatement in chapter 6, we see that Moses has absolutely no patience for God's timeline. Look again at verse 1. After the first hint of rejection, Pharaoh's, I will not let you go, Moses says, well, that's it. You have not delivered your people at all. 
It would be similar to, let's say, I have an issue with my furnace. And Jeremy says, I'm going to help you with your furnace. I promise to do that. Jason, this is what you do. You go downstairs, you take off the cover plate, and by the way, it's not going to come off. It's a really hard cover plate. It's on there. But then after, clear out the area. And then after that, I'm coming, and all will be well. So what do I do? I trust Jeremy. He's made a promise to me. I go downstairs. I get out my toolkit. I'm trying. I'm working on those nuts and bolts. And I work for maybe an hour, two, maybe three. I throw up the wrench. I go upstairs. I dial up my friend Jeremy and say, you haven't helped me at all. And Jeremy, in his grace and mercy, says, well, well, what did I tell you? I actually told you it wouldn't come off. And I told you I was coming. That's no different to what is happening here with Moses. Church, what we see with the power and promise is that it always remains the same. Horizontal fixations don't change the fact that God's promises are the same. Oh, but how we fixate. God declared in chapter 3, and you know what? God declares the same thing in chapter 6, which makes sense with a God that never changes. Moses' God was sovereignly over Pharaoh and the events then. And by the way, Moses' God is sovereignly still over the events now and their fulfillment, by the way. God here is only describing the mighty hand from chapter 3, verse 19, with still more to come. Look, that strong hand will drive them out right out of the land, in fact, it says. That strong hand is the mighty, sovereign hand of God that will cause this exodus. Nothing has changed from the promise that was stated, remember, on Horeb and the burning bush. Nothing's changed. And more than that, nothing has changed from the time the promise was first stated and with whatever Moses views it to be. Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Beloved, God states three very important things here that reveal the power in promise. Three things. Note them with me. One, God says, look at it, I am the Lord. And look at this timeless marker. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God says, I am the same God that appeared to your forefathers. I am not some new deity that has popped up and rebooted himself and reimagined himself. I am the eternal Lord. Abraham's Lord, Isaac's Lord, Jacob's Lord, Israel, your Lord. That's who I am. I am the Lord. My name is not changed. However, and secondly here, my people's understanding of the power of my name will now be fully known. That's it. My people's understanding of what the great I am and the might behind that and making my name fully known. Now that's the revelation coming. That's the demonstration coming. God says, I appeared to them as God Almighty, El Shaddai. That's how I appeared to them. In one dimension, by name, without a display of might. But here now my people will know me as Yahweh. My name, the Lord, verse 3. This is not a new name given. This is revealing the power of the name. The name they've always known, but never realized. This is not just promise declared to the patriarchs, but this is promise realized. Promise realized. Moses, Israel, what you're witnessing now is the power and fulfillment of my name. And speaking of fulfillment, my name has always been tied to promise, which brings us to the third thing. The promise reference, look in verse 4, which now again is referred to as covenant. Look at verse 4, covenant. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God, again, just as he did in chapter 3, and this is key as we tie these together, reminds Moses of his covenant to his people. Nothing has changed. This is the covenant referred to as promise in chapter 3. Again, we turn back to chapter 3. Again, let's just pull these together. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. Same context as before on Horeb with the call to Moses. Look at what God says in verse 17. I promise, note that, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at it, beloved. I promise. I promise. Which itself, hold on to that, is a restatement of what? Put your thumb there and turn to Genesis 15. This is a helpful reminder. Nothing has changed with God. All he is doing is restating. Remember the covenant given to Abraham, Genesis 15? Let's just pick up that account. We've looked at this a few times, but I pray we're piecing it together. In verse 13, what does he say? Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Remember, this is to Abraham. This is to the patriarch. This is prior. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Nothing has changed. And we've noted, by the way, that timeline already, 400 years, which in this chapter you need to hang on to as well. Just hang on to that number, 400 years. And hang on to, by the way, the mention of the fourth generation. You see that in verse 16 as you now turn back to Exodus 6. Beloved, this is the power in promise. God's promise. No circumstance changes promise fulfillment. In fact, did you notice in Genesis 15, the further back you get, the more precise it is. That's a precise promise, isn't it? 400 years, fourth generation, ethnicities named. Incredible. Church, we live in a time, consider the promise of God against this. We live in a time where everything is changing rapidly, drastically, radically. The promises of spring were broken by summer. Is that not true? Everything we're told just kept getting broken, and it continues to. That is because that's what promise is in our world. Promise is broken with us. But listen, take comfort in this. That may be the impotency of human promises, but that is not the power in promise with God Almighty, with El Shaddai, with the great I Am. That's not how promise works with him. The power in God's promise is the fact that nothing ever changes. I pray maybe if there's one helpful tool this morning, you just let that marinate into your heart. With your God, nothing ever changes. He doesn't look at COVID. He doesn't look at a riot. He doesn't look at your circumstance. He doesn't look at the doctor. He doesn't look at your bank account and say, wow, what are we going to do? Beloved, nothing ever changes. Can you take comfort in that this morning? Nothing ever changes with God. He is eternally mighty. God promised more. God struck a covenant. And that means when God Almighty strikes a covenant, you know what that means? It means fulfillment. It means fulfillment. Exactly as detailed in the verses that come next. Let's continue in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. 
and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Did you notice God opens and closes this section with the same declaration of his name? I am the Lord. Between those bookends, he gives seven promises, and all of them introduced with this, I will, I will. Now, we need to note this before we look at each of them. All of the detailed promises here are soon fulfilled. In the book of Exodus, most of them, and some flow out into the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. And through that sure and certain promise fulfillment, these promises here demonstrate not only the unchanging character of our God, but Westmount, most on point here, they demonstrate the power in God's promise always. Note it. These are not just casual promises, not that they ever are with God. These are not just small things. Consider what God is promising here. First, look in verse 6, the first I will. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Again, you just simply sometimes have to think about what he's saying. That superpower, Egypt, that you're in slavery to, I will bring you out from that burden. And that is a promise of burden relief. The Lord promises to relieve burdens. Fulfilled, by the way, fulfilled when Israel is released from burden, get this, by Pharaoh's own mouth. Exodus 12, 32, we'll get there. By Pharaoh's own mouth, hardened heart, but by his own mouth, he will let them go. The second I will, the second promise is also in verse 6. He says this, I will deliver you from slavery. That's a promise of deliverance. The Lord promises to free from those chains of slavery. Fulfilled graphically as the Israelites replace their Egyptian chains in Exodus 12, 35, for Egyptian silver, gold, and clothing as they turn the tables and plunder Egypt. The third, I will, look at the end of verse 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is not only a promise of redemption, but redemption secured with might. Look at that. Outstretched arm, acts of judgment, fulfilled memorably as the Israelites march through the parted Red Sea. And you know that vista in chapter 14, which we'll also get to. Four and five, the four and five I wills, you see them together in verse seven. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is a staggering promise of intimacy. This is a promise of relationship. Again, intimate relationship, a God and his people. Fulfilled in Exodus 19.5, the law preparation, the consecration, God says, you shall be my, note this, treasured people. And that's the establishment of the law, to be my people, to be in relationship with me, to walk right with me, to be a light to the nations. Here it is. This is what it's going to look like. Incredible relationship establishment. Then, 6 and 7, I wills. You see them together in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is a promise of conquest, rest, and land inhabitants for Israel. Of course, all of that fulfillment is outlined in one book of the Bible, Joshua. That's the power, the might in promise. God says, I will, and each and every time, Westmount, it comes to pass. Do you see that? When God says, I will, here's your equation. Not promise brokenness. God says, I will fulfillment every time. And I want you to consider the scope here, please. The promise to a lowly shepherd and a lowly people who were under the mightiest of people in the world at the time. Can you just imagine the weight of that I will? 
This is not I will help you with your furnace or I will be there at seven or I will give you some money. I will liberate you from the superpower of the world, something that by horizontal lens is impossible. God Almighty says, I will. And it comes to be. And church, in light of this text in front of you, I want you for a moment to consider your promises. Because you make promises to people. I want you also to consider the promises that you receive from others. Do any of them have this kind of promise fulfillment behind them? Do any promises that you give or you receive have this kind of power behind them? That's your God. Because none of us can fulfill promises like this, let alone 100% of the time. Not with this might. This is the power in promise. That's one characteristic. Next, the patience with promise. The patience with promise. We continue the account in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips." You read Moses and Israel's response, and you feel like this is deja vu, right? Don't you feel that? Like, have we not been here before? And that is because we have, indeed, seen all of this before. First, Israel's response in verse 9, look at it. It takes you back to the broken response in chapter 5, verse 21. Remember, Moses, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Very similar. Again, circumstances, and note that, circumstances caused the Israelites to not receive the word of God. Did you catch that? Circumstances cause God's people not to receive the word of God. This is nothing new in Exodus and church that is nothing new today. Insert burden today. Insert struggle today. Insert trial today. Anything that disrupts our normal, anything that disrupts our happiness, and you can draw a short and straight line to our failure then to listen to God's word. Our eyes squarely on the suffering instead of the sovereign God that's over it. Have you been there? I know you have. You cannot get your eyes off the suffering. And often you get agitated when a friend comes to you with a promise of God. You say, don't give me those right now. I'm going through something. I want to look at the suffering that I'm going through. Don't give me the promises of God. Yes, we do exactly the same thing. 1 Corinthians 10, this has been given to us by way of example. So we don't do. So we don't do. Secondly, Moses' response in verse 12 is a page out of the same playbook from chapter 4. I mean, Moses, you got a small playbook. It's the same thing over and over. Remember there in chapter 4, verse 10, Moses protested with this when called by God. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Here, Moses is basically saying the same. I am here of uncircumcised lips. By the way, if you're wondering why he used that term, uncircumcised for the Jews of any body part meant it was defective, unfit, and disabled. Circumcised was perfection. Circumcised is where you needed to be. Uncircumcised meant unfit. And hence you see, it is really the same protest. You can use different words, Moses, but it's the same protest revisited. And we know that. At this point, our response to Moses might go something like this. Moses, really, have we not been over this? Yet you go back to your lips again. For many of us, think about this, that would be it, right? This guy's not getting it at all. I mean, I'm moving on to someone else. This guy has a lips fixation. We don't have the time Or the patience, beloved, think with me, we do not have the time or the patience in our modernity 
to go through this again and again with someone. We just don't have the time in our modern sensibilities to deal with this. And church, with that, I wonder how instructive that is for us this morning. Indeed, listen with me. How often is our promise breaking tied directly to our impatience? I mean, what is the great cliche? I know I said that, but I can't take it anymore. Have you heard that? I know what I said. I know what I promised, but look at my horizon. Look at my horizontal circumstances. I can't take it anymore. I know what I said. Don't come to me with wedding vows and all of that. Do you not understand what they've done to me? Do you not understand what they continue to do to me? I can't take it anymore. How many versions, beloved, of that impatient formula play out with us every day? How many? Yes, that is our impatience with promise. Take heart. Take heart. With God's promises, it is patience. Every time, no matter what you do, patience. Look at verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God does not lose patience. God does not forsake. God does what? He gives Moses and Aaron a charge. I really appreciate the ESV rendering here. It captures the context. It says a charge. Some of you have command and orders. This is a charge. And what is that charge? It's stated so simply at the end of verse 13, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is almost like a by the way. Moses, remember what I've told you. Remember my charge to you. Moses, remember the plan and remember all that I have promised you. No rebuke here, just a charge. That is the patience God gives with his promises. Beloved, that is patience with promise that we simply don't have. We don't. That is why we break promises, and that's why God keeps them. That is why we break covenants, and that's why God keeps them. That is why we, in our impatience, must turn to the perfect patience of Almighty God. 1 Timothy 1, 16. To understand promise, biblical promise, is to understand that divine patience is required with it. God does not lose patience, unlike us, with his promises. That escape valve we have that causes us to break promises, God does not have that. God is long-suffering, and he's a faithful covenant God. He says, I will, and he is patient to see it to fulfillment. That's your God. Okay, we move on to the next characteristic of promise. We've looked at the power in promise, the patience with promise, and now the people by promise. The narrative here pauses for a moment to give us a genealogy. This is the first we hit here in Exodus. Genealogies are like family trees, branches, lines that trace heritage. They are very important in Scripture. They may derail your devotions one morning, but they are super important in Scripture. Why? Because they're given to authenticate lines and descents and heritage. And these were extremely important to the Jews because they used these family trees, these genealogies, to link themselves, their lines, back to the patriarchs to say, we are Israel. At first glance, a genealogy here, and, and exactly where it's placed here, in the middle of a conversation between God and Moses, it seems out of place, doesn't it? Just seems like it's parachuted into this account. The question is, is it? Is it out of place? Well, to answer that question, let's consider where this genealogy takes us. So we're going to walk through this, pausing briefly to make comments along the way. Let's begin in verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. 
Reuben, of course, was the firstborn of Israel, or Jacob, as he was first known. And he had Reuben by way of Leah. Jacob, remember, we covered much of this in chapter 1, had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So this genealogy opens with the firstborn of Israel, right? Reuben and a list of his sons. Pretty straightforward. And we continue in verse 15. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. Simeon was the second born to Jacob, also by way of Leah, and his sons, like Reuben, are listed here as well. Now, at this point, you think, aha, I see the pattern. The 12 sons, right, are going to be listed with their sons. Well, the pattern, in some sense, ends with the next son, Levi. Let's continue reading and pay attention to verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. Stop there. Notice something that pops into this genealogy. It's in the line info for Levi, the thirdborn, by the way. We are given something interesting. You see it? His age, 137. Now just take note of that and just keep reading. Verse 17. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzeel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. The genealogy, and again, we just kind of look at those verses for a moment. Rather than continuing with Judah, because that's what you'd expect, right? Well, where's Judah? What does it do? It stops after Levi and it drills down into Levi's line. Look at that. It pauses right here at Levi, interesting, and proceeds here to list what we'll see, Levi's three sons and then their sons. Now, later on in Exodus, we find out why the tribe of Levi is noteworthy, but we want to mention it here. From Levi's line, you get what in Exodus 28? The establishment of the priesthood. And the priests are what? The great intercessors, the great mediators for God's people. Now that's interesting. Aaron and Aaron's four sons become the first priests in Israel, the newly erected tabernacle, the establishment of the priests. And we'll see that later in Exodus. So one of the points of the genealogy here would be to authenticate Aaron, his line, his family, and Moses. Do you see that? They will stand before Pharaoh on behalf of Israel, note that, not just randomly chosen to be reps. That's not what's happening here. But as God's preordained mediators for his people in full accord with their lineage, which will later be revealed to be the priesthood. The mediators. Again, they were the intercessors, but what's amazing in God's sovereignty, before they become that officially, they are it in practice. And this is God's stamp as a way to say, oh, don't worry, dear reader, dear Jew, I already have these guys by line. Amazing. That's important. And again, we'll come back to that. But one more detail to bring with us. Notice here, as Levi's age was given, so too, look in verse 18, is Kohath's, his son, his age is given, 133. Of Levi's three sons, it appears... For a reason that Kohath is being singled out here. So you have Levi, Kohath. Let's hold on to that and continue in verse 20. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram, here it is, look, being 137 years. We're seeing something as a pattern. Kohath's son is named Amram, and here we see for him too his age is given. Levi, Kohath, and Amram. But also that Amram becomes the father of Moses and Aaron. Now there's a link. All the lights are going off, right? There's the link. And by the way, it's quite stark there, the fact that Amram took a relative, his aunt, is his wife. That was simply, beloved, the practice in those times, those ancient times, those primal times. Before the law was given, Abraham did the same, Isaac did the same, taking from their clan, from their relatives' wives. 
Let's complete the genealogy, and then we'll make some final comments. Look at verse 21. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nephag, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri, Aaron took as his wife Elsheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. Diversion there in those verses, by the way, for Aaron, noting especially the genealogy wants to note here his wife and his sons. Do you see that in verse 23? And also interesting, and we don't want to miss this, is a special mention of one of Aaron's grandsons, Phineas. And he is a future priest to note. Note it, also a priest. He's the hero in Numbers 25. Remember the Baal worship at Peor? He's the one with that spear. He's the army leader in Numbers 31. He's the promised land priest in Joshua 22. And he's actually high priest in Judges 20. This genealogy, along with pointing to Moses and Aaron, wants us to note Phineas. It ends with Phineas. And note this as we pull back. The priests, the interceders, the mediators, the ones that stand in the gap are the ones in view here. Do you see that? That's what this genealogy wants to do. It's pointing you to these men. Look at it in bold, verse 25. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of what? The Levites, the priests. By their clans. So let's stop and just look at the whole here. We have three priests with their ages listed. What are they? Levi, Kohath, and Amram. Verses 16 to 20. There are three men singled out from three generations. Levi's the first generation, after him, Kohath the second, Amram the third, and then following them, a fourth generation of who? Moses and Aaron. That connects the patriarchs to the current generation here in Exodus. Do you see that? That's the connective tissue. This is tracing a promise given to God's people, the patriarchs, and continuing it by way of God's people right through that family line. That's what's going on here. And that would be by way of four sons or four different generations. And that would be by way of roughly 400 years. Their years listed here, plus Moses' 80 years, you account for overlap between father and son, and we should be saying, I have heard this before. Does it ring a bell? Once again, turn back to Genesis 15. Remember the promise. 400 years, four generations. Genesis 15 said to Abraham, Way before this Exodus account, I read again, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And listen to this. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Isn't that amazing? God said, I will, and God does. God does. Why this genealogy? Why here? This is a reminder, and we all need reminders, of promise fulfillment by way of God's people. These are not just two guys who happen to be in the right place at the right time. Oh, lo and behold, Moses and Aaron, I'm glad you showed up. I've got work for you to do. These are two Levites, preordained Levites, two from the future priestly line who will intercede, all orchestrated by the divine sovereign hand of God. And that's your stamp here to say, God's saying, I'm on this. I've already. They're not priests yet, but they are in function, not in label. I've got this. This is the point of the family line inserted here. Westmount, let's not miss this. This is an affirmation for Israel that God was shaping events, shaping births, shaping deaths, and everything. And this is a confirmation of God's promise. And listen, always affirmed through lineage. Think of Matthew 1. You wonder why the book of Matthew opens with a genealogy. 
confirming the promise. Confirming the promise. Yes, to understand God's promise is to understand the people by which he gives it. Okay, we have just enough time for one last characteristic of promise. The final verse, the practice of promise. Look at it, the practice of promise. Verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? It is incredible, isn't it? Incredible, and I speak for myself. If nothing else, man, do I relate. Moses, I understand. Interestingly, this chapter again ends with that. We kind of smile to ourselves. We recognize, wow, we're there. The words of protest through the whole thing set against the grace of our God. Again, next week we'll see God answer back graciously and, by the way, thunderously as chapter 7 opens. The action really begins to unfold. What grabs our attention, however, here is in verse 29. Let us not miss this. And these words from the Lord, look carefully. I am the Lord. And we've seen that all through this account. But then this, look. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Don't miss the import there. God reiterates who he is. I am the Lord. That is the backing in Pharaoh's court. And with that, only one other thing, Moses, only one other thing. If you're going to focus on one thing, and it is this, Moses, the words that I have given to you. No, Moses, you need not find the right lips. Stop trying. I've spoken to that. No, Moses, you need not find a clever system to win Pharaoh over. Don't look for that right formula, that right algorithm to win people to the Lord, to Yahweh. No, Moses, stop. Just what I have told you. Do you see that? Moses, you need nothing at all. Look at verse 29, beloved. Look at verse 29. Only the words I say to you. Beloved, that and only that, the words of God, is the practice of promise. Just say my words. Moses, just know them. Just stick to them. That's it. Tell my words. Tell my words. Church, as you listen to that charge to Moses, can you see our problem with promise? We have a hard time practicing that, don't we? Now listen, we don't have a hard time practicing. We practice other words, and we're very good at it. We know start times, shows, and so on. We know headlines, and we're ready to tell anyone who will listen the headline we just read. And we know movie lines, and it astounds us how they're just there, and we know them. We know words. We know endless words, but listen to me, beloved. We know empty words. We don't know God's word. That's the practice of promise. What will uphold you in such times? What's the practice of promise? Verse 29. What of God's lines? Do we practice and rehearse those lines? Are we ready for that ministry, that mission field, that sanctification, that glory to God? What of God's words? What of the practice of words that are not dead and temporal, but are living and active? What of those words? What about the practice of words of promise that aren't empty and don't equate to brokenness. What about the words, don't you want this, beloved, that you know you can hold on to in these times and say, my God will never fail. Would you not want to hold on to those words? I know what the anchor man said. I know what the soundbite says. And I certainly know those blogs. But you must know what God says. I will. Nothing is surprising him today. Nothing. I will. Friend, might you, whatever your stead today, be interested in God's words? Might you?
Moses, all you need to do in the most fearful of environments, you're going into the lion's den, right? You're going before Pharaoh, right? All you need to do is remember my words. Tell my words. Get your focus off the naysayers, the taskmasters, the Egyptians. Don't think of that. Tell my words. Focus instead on what I have told you to do and what I have promised. That is it. I hear so much of Joshua 1 here. We don't have the time to go to Joshua 1, but mark it. Take courage. Don't let this book of the law depart. Right? No fancy swords in Joshua 1. No military strategy in Joshua 1. What is the strategy and the promise in Joshua 1? Stick to my words. Don't let them depart for the greatest military conquest you will see. Because Israel through Moses were not the only people to whom God said he will. We can go through time and see it over and over again, but we're reminded here there were another people to come later that would also receive the promise. Matthew 1.21. The promise to a soon-to-be groom, Joseph, about his son, you shall call his name Jesus. For what? He will save his people from their sins. For God's people, the promise through Christ is salvation. The promise of salvation. Beloved, is that not enough? Right? But you know what? There's more. Salvation, being freed from the fire of hell, is enough. But you know with your God, there's more. Listen closely. John 6, 39, 40. Listen, beloved, listen. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And listen, beloved, keep this. And I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. The Father's will to do what? I will raise him, you believer, up on the last day. Resurrection promise. Will you get through the pandemic? Oh, you will get through so much more than that. You'll get through death itself. Did we not just sing that this morning? You will raise from the dead on the last day. Why? Because he said he will. He will. Westmount to understand promise is to know that promise will be fulfilled. Praise God. Fulfilled for all those who repent from their sin and believe in Christ, they are saved. And for all those who are saved, they will be raised to new life on that day. He will. He will. That is understanding promise, and I trust that promise is your hope today. Father, we thank you for the great promise that you will. God, please forgive us for our horizontal fixations. Oh, Lord, we cannot get our eyes off the temporary. We can't stop. God, help us fixate on the eternal promises, salvation and future glory. God, help us live in those promises as we leave this place today. Amen.